Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6? 1 Timothy, our scripture reading for our text this morning is going to come from verses 6 through 10, but I'm going to start with the context and look at verse 1 through 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Of course, if you're a guest of ours, we've been going through a series entitled Joy Seeker. Understanding that the pursuit of happiness and holiness, if, if they're, they're born out from Christ, they are the same pursuit. For a Christian, the pursuit of our true and lasting happiness is the pursuit of our holiness. And the pursuit of our holiness, therefore, is the ultimate pursuit of our happiness. And so we've been doing this based on an outline uh, by a book by John Piper entitled uh, Desiring God. And if you're a guest of ours, again, this is not what we normally do. Normally, we go line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we'll be starting that soon again in August, but sometimes when you're reading God's word and there's just a recurring theme that comes out over and over and over again, it's okay to look at that topic. And that topic for me as I was reading God's word was joy. Um, joy as being central to the life of the Christian. So today we're going to be looking at seeking joy in contentment primarily by combining two chapters in the book, the chapter on money and the chapter on marriage. So we'll be seeking joy and contentment in money and marriage, and the doors are already locked, so you can't go anywhere. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, they're, they're not. I'm sorry. But uh, let's do this together. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you stand for the honor of reading God's Word in 1 Timothy chapter 6? We'll be reading again, verses 1 through 10. Let's do that together. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and in a many foolish and harmful lust which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us to set our sights toward those things that are of true and lasting worth. Things that will bring about both happiness and holiness. Because we as your people, Father, we long for the great gain that's described here in the text that we just read. And that is godliness with contentment. We pray that you will teach us the way of joy in our pursuits 
of you through money and marriage, that these things should be great cause to serve your glory and our joy, which as we have learned are in the same end. We pray all this for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you, you may be seated. Now maybe in hearing this morning that I'm combining the chapters on money and marriage, you think I've got no business doing that because marriage and money don't really go together. Well, they do in the Bible. Um, in fact, I, I was thinking about this, the 10th commandment, uh, which says you shall not cover your neighbor's house, his wife, or any of his goods. That's just an example of God teaching us in words like that how to pursue joy through first, our contentment uh, for God's provision in our lives, and then second, seeking our joy in the joy of our neighbor. See, this has everything to do with both marriage and money. And so as we've done in this series, we'll take one topic at a time. Let's start by considering pursuing our greatest joy through money. Considering our greatest joy, pursuing our greatest joy through money. Um, the title of the chapter in the book actually says money, the currency of Christian hedonism or, or joy. In fact, let me, let me read to you how the book begins this chapter. It's a very striking way it begins. It says money is the currency of Christian hedonism. What you do with it or desire to do with it can make or break your happiness forever. The Bible makes clear that what you feel about money can destroy you. And then he lists the verse we just read in 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Or he says, what you do with your money can secure the foundation of eternal life. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is true in life. That's in verses 18 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6. See, these verses, he says, teach us to use our money in a way that will bring us the greatest and longest gain. That is, they advocate Christian hedonism. They confirm that it is not only permitted, but commanded by God that we flee from destruction and pursue our full and lasting pleasure. And they imply that all the evils in the world come not because our desires for happiness are too strong, but because they are so weak that we settle for fleeting pleasures that do not satisfy our deepest souls, but in the end destroy them. The root of all evil is that we are the kind of people who settle for the love of money instead of the love of God. What I really want to do is try and open this up and explain to you from the scriptures exactly what he means by that statement. And so let's start together in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Let's read that, that, that verse together where he says this, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. In the context, he mentions that there are people who are after money and are after gain. But it's not wrong to be after gain. The problem, he says, is not that people are after gain, but they will not have great gain when God holds it out to them. So, for instance, to the greedy on Wall Street, we would say, why are you satisfied with so little when so much is offered to you with contentment? People think that money will buy them happiness. 
And isn't it true, though, that we see this from the rich in our society? They are never satisfied with what they have or what they earn. The apostle says, however, if you've got godliness with contentment, then you have indeed achieved great gain. Great gain only comes through godliness. So today, I just want to encourage you to pursue a greater gain. Godliness gives us satisfaction with our material wealth while it produces great spiritual wealth for all of eternity. So in verses 7 to 10, the apostle is going to give us three reasons why we should seek our happiness, why we should not seek our happiness from more and more money. Three reasons why we should not live for the love of money. Here we go. Three reasons why we should not live for the love of money. The first is found in verse 7. The first reason that you and I should not live for the love of money is simply because we will soon leave our money behind. We will soon leave our money behind. When Rockefeller died, somebody once asked one of his aides, well, how much did he leave behind? And the aide replied, all of it. I mean, we've said this over and over again. How many of you have seen a Hearst pulling a U-Haul trailer? Nobody. It doesn't happen. Why? Because we know you cannot take it with you. Look what the apostle says in verse 7 of our text. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Uh, the book that we're mentioning has a humorous story I'd like to read and share of an illustration here. He says, suppose somebody passes empty-handed through a turnstile at a big city art museum and just begins to take pictures off the wall and carry them importantly under his arm. You come up to him and say, what are you doing? He answers, I'm becoming an art collector. But they're not really yours, you say. And besides, they won't let you take any of those out of here. You'll have to go out just like you came in. But he answers again, sure they're mine. I've got them under my arm. People in the halls look at me as if I'm an important dealer. And I don't bother myself with thoughts about leaving. Don't be a killjoy. We would call this man a fool. right? We would, we would say somebody like that's insane. And yet... This is the person who exerts himself to get riches which he cannot keep. Friends, the reality is, sooner than you think, you will be leaving the same way you came in, with nothing. Money is temporary, therefore, we should not live for the love of money. In verse 8, Paul is going to give us a second reason we should not live for the love of money. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, In having food and clothing, we shall, with these, we shall be content. That is to say, the second reason why you and I should not live for the love of money is because we ought to be content in the Lord with the simple necessities of life. We ought to be content in the Lord with the simple necessities of life. Baloo was so close, wasn't he? The bear from the jungle book, the bear necessities. If, if God is yours, you don't need so many other things to give you joy, peace, and security. You just need the simple or bare necessities. I hope you're not just thinking about that song for the rest of the sermon. It's probably a mistake there. This is the point he actually makes in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, where we read this. The writer of Hebrews says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
Friends, no matter which way the market is moving, God is always better than gold. We can be content with simplicity because really the the deepest, most satisfying delights that God has given us in this life are through creation and those free gifts from nature and and loving relationships with people. That's it. And so here's the point. If you spend your hours and thoughts simply on how to accumulate more and more money, you're missing out on those chief delights that God has given So after your basic needs are met, accumulated money will begin to diminish your capacity for those natural pleasures rather than increase them. Can I tell you something that you need to hear this morning? Buying things contributes absolutely nothing to the heart's capacity for joy. We we don't believe that in our society, but it's true. We ought to be content with these simple necessities. Why? Because we have the Lord. The third reason he says we should not live for the love of money is not only because we'll soon leave it behind and not only because we ought to be content with the necessities of life, but third he says that pursuing riches will destroy our lives eternally. This is just quite simple as he lays it out in verses 9 and 10 of our text. Pursuing riches will destroy our lives eternally. He says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. None of us reading that would want to plunge in such ruin and destruction, would we? So to pursue our greatest joy through money, we must learn to manage it quite differently than this. And so at this point, many of you might have a question for me. Okay, well, if I have a bit of money then, then what should I do with it? If I'm, if I'm rich, and let's say, uh, just for the sake of saying, arguably, arguably everyone in America is rich, considering our situation globally and historically, we certainly are, are more fortunate and blessed than those in third world countries right now. So let's just presume that we are filthy rich, comparatively so to other nations. What should we therefore do with our money. So Paul gives instruction to people like us. Look at it briefly. In verses 17 and 19 of chapter 6, look at his instruction to the rich. What should a Christian do when God prospers his or her business so that real wealth is at hand? Look what he says in verses 17 and 19. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Here in this world, riches are uncertain, the apostle says. Jesus reminds us Moth and rust destroy thieves and break in and steal, Matthew 6. So he says the answer is to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth or rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal. See, Jesus is not against investments. He's not. He's against foolish and uncertain investments. Why should you store up in this world? Pursue certain return. Pursue greatest gain. 
Give alms, he goes on to say. Provide for yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Here is joy seeking once again. This is a command. Provide yourself unfailing purses and solid treasures by laying it up in heaven. You rich, he says, don't be foolish. Invest where you can have the greatest return. So here the apostle gives three clear directions briefly to the rich about how to manage our money. Three clear directions to those of us who have more than food and clothing on how to manage our money. First, he says this, command those who are rich not to be haughty, proud. Command those who are rich not to be haughty. Why does he feel the need to say this? Because we know this in our society, don't we? Wealth for most people is simply status, right? It's a sign of their superiority toward others. Justin and I have this conversation all the time. I tell him, I will only trust politicians that drive a worse car than I have, right? Um, Why? (laughs) Because we see all these people who are technically for the people, and yet they've got more money than I ever had, right? Or will ever have. And not only that, but their money seems to drive them toward this sort of power and wealth and gain. We see the same thing with professional athletes and those who are rich, That's why it means more if we see somebody who's a senator or congressman or athlete that drives a Toyota Camry or something, right? We we believe them because we like seeing people whose money has not made them haughty or proud. At the end of verse 17, he also says, not only command those who are rich not to be haughty, but he also says, don't let your money make you forget the Lord. Don't let your money make you forget the Lord. He says, don't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. This is very similar to Moses' warning to the people coming into the promised land in Deuteronomy. He says this, he says, he might humble you in that he might test you to do good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And that, why? That he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. See, the great danger of riches is that they will carry our hearts away from God and only toward his gifts. From serving God to serving mammon. So be careful, Jesus warns. The solution is to invest wisely. You notice he said in Matthew 6, he says, where your treasure is, he says, there your heart will be also. And so if you find a dull and hard heart toward the things of God, a compassionless spirit within you, Jesus says, the answer for you is to invest, for your heart will follow your treasure. That's interesting. You would have expected him to say, get your heart in the right place and, and your treasure will follow. But he doesn't say that. He simply says, invest and your heart will follow your treasure. And so I just got a simple question for you this morning. Where is your treasure right now leading your heart? Think about that. Think about what is my treasure and and therefore where is it actually leading my heart? Is it leading to a stock market? To a statement that comes once a quarter? Are you invested in true, everlasting happiness? This is the way to do so. Don't let your money forget 
the Lord, cause you to forget the Lord. Don't allow yourselves to become haughty. And in the third final direction of Paul, he gives to us a rich, he says in verse 18, these words, he says, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. This is the way to move our hearts to true and lasting happiness. I call this third point, use your money to be rich in good deeds and love. Use your money to be rich in good deeds and love. Because once you and I are liberated from the evil of pride and we have set our hopes on God, not money, only one thing can happen. That money will flow freely toward goodness and love according to the word of Christ. This is how to pursue everlasting joy through money. Seeking to do good, to bring joy for others, and love caring for their needs. And so, again, the question is for you, church family, where do you want your heart to go? Maybe the the appropriate question is, where has your heart led you already? Are you going to have your heart go toward gain or great gain? That's the choice the apostle lays before us in 1 Timothy 6. God has made us in order that we should seek the greatest gain, which is godliness with contentment. God has made it so we can have no true satisfaction of our soul without him. To have him even with little is truly to be rich. For the treasures of earth cannot satisfy the soul. Only the Lord can. Friends, you were made for another God besides money. You were made for the one whom, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he assures you all these things shall be added to you. May we therefore give up small pursuits and uncertain returns and be satisfied with nothing less than great gain. Well, now that we've covered one of the topics you're never supposed to bring up at the dinner table, uh, let's go ahead and move to another and talk about marriage. We make the shift here from money to marriage. Let's consider pursuing our greatest joy through marriage. And and here's another reason why we combine this, because all the same principles apply. You'll notice that. All the same principles apply. Godliness with contentment in marriage is likewise great gain. Uh, The chapter in the book also begins in a real frightening way. Uh, Piper says this, he says, The reason there is so much misery in marriage is not that husbands and wives seek their own pleasure, but they do not seek it in the pleasure of their spouses. The biblical mandate to husband and wives is to seek your own joy in the joy of your spouse. That's what love is. The pursuit of our own joy in the joy of our beloved. He points to several verses in Ephesians chapter 5, which Brother Corey already read for us. In 528, he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Don't you want to love yourself? Then why don't you love your wife? Or do you not see the value of that one? Proverbs 31.10 tells us, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. Such passages like that and many others, they they appeal to our own desire to pursue happiness as a means to getting joy in marriage through the joy of others. 
Now, maybe at this point you're sitting here wearing thin of this. You're like, of all topics that I don't want you to consider playing into the self-gratifying, self-serving age of our world, this is the one. Listen, we shouldn't emphasize the pursuit of happiness in marriage. That's the problem. We should emphasize duty and commitment and submission and self-sacrifice. For marriage is about holiness first and not happiness. You know what's coming, right? (laughs) You getting tired of me saying this yet? The point of the scripture is that is a lie. Happiness and holiness in marriage are in the same direction. That is, if you want happiness, this is the way, holiness. We should not separate what God has joined together, both in marriage and in happiness and holiness. So today, I would like for all of us to be biblical and considering God's stated purpose for marriage and bringing us joy and gladness. Now, obviously, I can't cover every aspect of marriage in half a sermon. I don't intend to. I'm simply trying to convey pursuing our greatest joy through marriage. For I noticed this as I was studying for this lesson. Of all the words connected to marriage in the Bible, with the exception of love, you know what most frequently appears? Joy. Allow me to give you a little sampling of that. Solomon writes to the men in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 9.9, he says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. To his own son, Solomon writes in Proverbs 5.18-19, And rejoice with the wife of your youth and be always enraptured with her love. A pretty wonderful phrase, I think. Enraptured with her love. Solomon's own wedding day is described in this way in Song of Solomon 3, 11. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with a crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Again and again, the Bible will connect this married love with a life of joy. Isaiah 62, 5, the Lord says to his own people, he says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God uses this picture of joy in marriage again and again. And you want to know why? Because scarcely is there a happier thing that's been created by him than marriage. Scarcely is there a more joyous occasion than a wedding. I won't multiply examples here, but I'll skip to the end where in Revelation, he points us to the goal of all human history in the most joyful words that can be imagined in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. I'm not sure there could be a better picture of eternal joy that could be given. So you see, dear married couples and those who are preparing for marriage, God has given you marriage with the expressly stated purpose of joy. To make you happy. Now God has given you many other things in this life to make you happy, of course, as Paul mentioned in our previous passage. God has given you all things richly to enjoy, But marriage is so much more important than feasting or anything like that. For marriage is our life every day. Marriage is ours every day to cultivate, deepen, preserve, and practice that joy. Friends, hear me. God wants you to have a very joyful marriage. Do you believe that? Y'all thought that was rhetorical, didn't you? (laughs) Starting to scare me here. Okay. 
Why, we need that happiness for the strength that it gives us, don't we? Because it's far easier to bear almost any burden when we're truly happy. A joyful marriage is an important part of that joy of life that is to be ours as Christians. Now, I used this example, I think, back in week one. But you remember the Queen of Sheba, how she visited Solomon and she came with her great caravan to see for herself if all the things she had heard about Israel were, were true about their king? But then when she saw Solomon's courts and she tested him with her questions, she said in 1 Kings 10, 7 and 8, However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Listen, that's the idea and the principle of Christian marriage, men and women. People should see the way you are loved and the way you love. Men, people should say to our wives, how happy you must be to have such a godly husband in such a marriage as that. Friends, God has given me many things in this life beside himself which have brought me joy. You know the love for my children, you know the love for my work here, my church family, my extended family, but I tell you all under God, if there has been anything in my life that has brought me joy, it's the love of my wife. Happy indeed am I because of the love of Amy Page. And with that, understanding my frailty and faults as a husband, allow me therefore by the word of God to give you this instruction from God's word that you may know that this is the joy God has intended for his people. Two very simple instructions here. First, married couples, you are to rejoice together in the Lord. That, that may sound like a simple phrase, doesn't it? Let me break it down again. You are to rejoice together in the Lord. A Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor of many years, he put it this way. He said, happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness and it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. For the vast majority are alas doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery. See, too many people in marriage are seeking happiness in a way that is bound to give them nothing but misery. Why? Because they're seeking their happiness apart from God and finding only frustration. Hear me, church family, you can never cut yourself off from the only source of happiness and then hope to prosper. For when people are in rebellion against him, they're, they're, this is what they do. We see this throughout scripture. They therefore turn God's greatest blessings into man's greatest miseries. Even in marriage, the principle within you of sin and self, that spirit within us of rebellion that drives us from God, it drives marriage into misery. I see this all the time when I'm counseling couples, right? The blame game. It's happened in Genesis 3 and it's happened ever since. You know who your biggest enemy in marriage is? You. Your sin. That's your biggest enemy in marriage. Listen, it, it is important this. That principle goes on. So God therefore warns his people what a spirit like that will produce. A people that have forsaken me, a fountain of living water, hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. What do you expect to happen without the Lord? We can find joy in so many things in this life, but these things are to be received from God and enjoyed in God. 
So first and foremost, we must learn to rejoice together in the Lord. As husband and wife, rejoice in the Lord. What that means is it is important that husbands and wives should listen consciously to all that the Lord has said and copy that relationship with God intends for Christ and the church. Listen to all the things the word tells us about sacrifice and submission, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, wives seeing to it they respect their husband. You know the passages. And so the book comments this. Piper says, the husband who plops himself down in front of the TV and orders his wife around like a slave has abandoned the way of Christ. Jesus bound himself with a towel and washed the apostles' feet. Woe to the husband who thinks his maleness requires of him a domineering, demanding attitude toward his wife. Didn't think that would get a lot of amens. Jesus says in Luke twenty two twenty six, He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs, who rules, who leads as he who serves. So Piper goes on to say, he says, wives, seek your joy in the joy of your husband by affirming and honoring his God-ordained role as leader in your relationship. Husbands, seek your joy in the joy of your wife by accepting the responsibility to lead as Christ led the church and gave himself for her. Friends, marriage was God's idea. He made it. And he made it for your joy. But marriage is to be in the Lord, and therefore you must learn to rejoice in the Lord together by taking heed of all that he has said to you in his word. Second direction to you is this, and this will be quick and we'll close. It's not only to rejoice in the Lord together, but secondly to you married, bring joy to each other. Make it part of your life's purpose on this earth to bring joy to each other. If marriage is intended by God for our joy then when things are not going well, the question you need to ask yourself is this, have I been bringing joy to my spouse? Notice the question isn't, am I happy? Has my spouse been bringing joy to me? The question is, have I been bringing joy to my spouse? See, as Christians, we're devoted to bringing joy to others. That's who we are. You know, that's part of the Christian walk. As we bring joy to others, how much more so in marriage? Speak to each other of your love, affection, desire of your fulfillment in one another. Listen, it's a sad state that in so many marriages there is little rejoicing. How little happy speech, how little celebrating. Just do me a favor and read through the celebration of marital love in the Bible. Read the book of Song of Solomon. Learn about what it means to bring one another joy with your words. Women, Proverbs 14, 1 tells us the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Speak with love, grace, kindness, celebrating your husband. Bring him joy in what you say to him. Husbands, do you remember the reward of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31? Solomon says her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Bring her joy with your words. You want to know something I wish I had learned a long time ago and I'm still learning every day? You cannot affirm your spouse too much. You can't. There is no such thing as affirming your spouse too much. 
I want the men, the husbands at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables to make their wives very, very happy. I want the wives at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables to make their husbands very, very happy. You know why? It's God's design for marriage. Will you do that? Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 29, For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Using the Lord as an example, he concludes by saying, He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, you will find your greatest happiness in marriage, not by seeking your own, but by seeking the happiness of the one you love. A union between a man and his bride is to be as one flesh. So any good done to her, men, is good done to you. And when we're thus united in marriage, we find the happiness of one is the happiness of the other. Therefore, husbands, you should devote the same energy, time, and creativity to making your wives happy that you would naturally devote to making yourself happy. The result is they make themselves even happier because the husband and wife are one flesh. And so the same applies for her love for him. The apostle demonstrates that happiness and holiness in marriage are the same direction. So the book concludes the chapter by saying Paul does not build a dam against the river of hedonism. He builds a channel for it. Listen, friends, I'm not here today to tell you 10 steps to a happy marriage, right? That you need to do more of this and more of that. The Bible's emphasis is simply on more love and joy. So all you Christian husbands here today, listen to me. Seek one another's happiness, and in doing so, you will bring the greatest happiness to yourself. I know for certain that there are married couples here that are not nearly as happy in love as you could be. And so if you're willing to push the envelope anywhere in your life, why not here? See how joyful your marriage can become. See what perfect pleasure and delight you can know. Sadly, the world's attitude about marriage is too often this. Maybe you've heard this. Don't keep running after you caught the bus. You ever heard that? But God's attitude is this. See how much joy you can have. How much romantic fire you can put in your love. How much pure happiness you can find in living with each other. And how much glory you can give to God by demonstrating to the world how good and kind he was to make marriage for us as a picture of Christ and his bride. In conclusion, the great Scottish minister James, James Fraser said this about his wife. And I will not say it in a Scottish accent. He says, the Lord showed his mercy to me in giving me a comfortable and suitable yoke fellow who did me good and not evil all the days of her life. In her I did behold as in a glass the Lord's love to me. By her were the sorrows of my pilgrimage many times sweetened and she made me frequently forget my sorrows and griefs and was the greatest temptation of me saying it is good for me to be here so that I can seal to the truth of that an inheritance is from the father's. But a good and prudent wife is from the Lord. And whoso findeth her obtaineth favor of the Lord. To all you couples or those preparing, may the Lord grant each of you his favor that you might learn to rejoice together in him all the days of your life. Would you stand with me as we close here this morning? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confessed uh, that too often we have 
turned your greatest blessings in this life into our greatest miseries, both for ourselves and for others around us. Lord, that we've sought wicked and selfish gain from both money and marriage. Father, we long for great gain, for godliness with contentment. We long for that true and lasting joy which you have held out to us in your word for that to be ours. We should pursue and know it. The people should see that we are a people committed to bringing happiness to others and rejoicing in their joy. Lord, you, Father, are our greatest treasure. And we pray that you would take away every other sinful desire, all desire for anything less than perfect happiness and holiness. It's for Jesus' sake and in his name we pray these things. Amen. Let's